This is Sight in Africa. Welcome to the third episode of this series from the LSE Theology Center for Africa. My name is Yeremia Willoughby. To determine our future, it is wise to first review our past. And that's what we'll be doing in this episode of Sight in Africa. In this nine-part podcast series, we are investigating the inequalities of the international education and research system, its impact on Africa-based academics, and current efforts to bring about change. But before we go any further in this series, we will be traveling through history to examine how higher education in African countries has evolved over the centuries and where it stands today. It is estimated that by 2050, Africa's youth, that is, those aged from 0 to 24 years, will make up almost 50% of the continent's population. And knowledge has been capturing an increasingly valuable share in the global economy. So higher education on the African continent has never been so important. Here's what Leonard Wanchikon, Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton and LSE Centennial Professor had to say about the current state of universities on the continent. University is an essential part of development. And the challenges that African universities face today are threefold. First of all, you have resource constraints because universities really need funding, need like government support, foundation support to be able to conduct the kind of research and training that are necessary to make university meaningful. And the second is the quality of primary, secondary, and high school education in general because uh, there has been a huge decline in quality uh, for the past 20 years or so. Even though access to education has increased uh, across Africa, the quality has not increased really, and this has a negative impact. And the third uh, issue is that uh, the place of those universities in global debates on African future, African development, because the kind of work that's done on Africa, whether it's in medical research, social science research, historical research, uh, have vastly has to increase. You have a large number of uh, you know faculty from North America, from Europe, working on Africa, and at the same time, the quality of the local university has declined. So as a result of this, you have a lack of representation of Africans and African universities in global, on global debate. Not just global debate in general, but global debate that has to do with Africa itself. Leonard Wanchikon with that summation. But how did they get there? Let's hear from Kewe Ebireri, who has provided us with a short potted history of higher education in Africa from pre-colonial times to the 20th century. University education on the African continent goes all the way back to the 9th century AD. This was when the University of Al-Karawiyin was established in the year 859 in Fez, Morocco. University of Al-Karawiyin has been recognized by the Guinness Book of Records as the oldest degree awarding institution in the world. Less than a hundred years later, Al-Hazar University in Egypt started welcoming students. It took more than 800 years for the next institution of higher learning to open its doors on African soil. The year was 1827, the country Sierra Leone. 35 years after the Black Poor of London arrived in the West African country, 
the Church Missionary Society founded Fora Bay College, the first Western-style university on the continent and at one time dubbed the Athens of Africa. Two years later, the University of Cape Town was opened in South Africa. There was a gap of 79 years before more universities started operating on the continent in Cairo, Algiers and a bit later, Kampala. Post-World War II, the rise in anti-colonial sentiment led to the rise of independent movements, which saw 43 African countries and territories achieve independence between 1957 and 1969. What role did higher education play against the background of the fervor and optimism of these newly independent nations? Let's hear again from Professor Leonard Wanchikon. Following uh, independence, um, there were some world-class universities in Africa, you know, like uh, University of Dakar, uh, now called Czech and Tadjop University, and Makerere University, University of Ibadan, to name a few. The reason why those universities were major players in on intellectual debates that has to do with Africa or research in general, because there was a flow of African scholars who got their education in top universities and who actually came back and worked on those universities. You can name a number of very major African scholars who taught abroad and, and came back uh, to teach. Not only to teach in those universities, but actually even to create, to, to create programs in other universities. Many of those African scholars, they were they had a mission, you know. I mean, they it, there was a momentum following independence that made them sort of take responsibility and ownership of building uh, a vibrant intellectual life in Africa. Some sense of patriotism and following World War Two, um, you know, there was any, an increase in enrollment on young Africans in Western universities. And, 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 you know, coupled with the big social movement for independence, you know, we, we, we had also, you know, we had a very kind of vibrant, uh, you know, uh, group of, you know, African, like, intellectuals who were working with, um, uh, you know, the independent movement leaders and so on. So, I mean, what I'm saying is that originally you have a birth of uh, an African intelligentsia following 1945, and then this momentum carry on to the 60s until the 70s. But, you know, I think today there is still a decline in terms of this spirit and this, um, you know, uh, and, 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 I, and one, you know, one, uh, someone who represented this movement very well, for instance, is Czech Antal Job, you know, considered one of the best uh, physicists and anthropologists and philosophers of his time, and who you can see from his work that it's not just the scientific kind of rigor and drive, but also, uh, you know, a commitment, a strong commitment uh, to building a strong uh, kind of intellectual life in, in, in Africa. And that's led to uh, what we see today as, um, 
you know, the University of Czech and that job. Professor Wanchikon there describing the thriving intellectual scene in early post-independence Africa. These vibrant intellectual debates also included calls for the curriculum to be decolonized. Let's hear from Akosia Adomako Ampofo, Professor of African and Gender Studies at the University of Ghana, Lagos. The 1960s, when the Institute of African Studies at the University of Ghana was founded, because when our first president um, opened the, the institute formally, he charged us to study the peoples and cultures of Africa and her diaspora from African-centered ways. Okay, So essentially, he was recognizing that you can study things in different ways, and that if you want to study us as a people, then there's an approach that you must take. And he specifically said that we should move away from studying Africa in Eurocentric ways. And then we're, we're here, we're talking the 1960, 1962, okay. So way back then, there was a recognition that um, knowledge is not benign. There's always uh, a perspective and there's a point of view of studying anything. Professor Adomako Ampofo there. In the article, Where is the African in African Studies, published on the Africa Adelesi blog, Liberian-American scholar Robta Nia Jaipeli describes the events of a 1969 meeting of the African Studies Association in Montreal. It was the first time Africa-based scholars had been invited in significant numbers, and they seized that opportunity to express concerns that African studies was firmly rooted on a foundation of institutional racism. Despite this good start, many African universities were unable to sustain the momentum of the early post-independence years. According to Leonard Wanchikon, two key factors contributed to the decline of higher education on the continent. Uh, the first one is the rise of military dictatorships in many of these countries. Many of the African intellectuals did not feel like safe working in their country and they have to claim the political refugee status in other neighboring countries or outside Africa. So, you know, Wole Sorinka, for instance, um, is a good example. And myself, even if I'm much younger than uh, Wole Sorinka, I fled my country as a political refugee and went to, to, to Canada. <laughs> Soldiers marching and singing in the aftermath of the 1966 coup d'etat in Ghana, which removed Kwame Nkrumah from power. It is important not to underestimate the impact of political unrest on successive generations of academics. Leonard Wanchikon again. Today, I'm you know, a, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences as a political scientist. Um, I've been elected fellow of the Economic Society as an economist. And I'm the only member of both of Economic Society who is well published in political science as well in, in economics. And you know, I'm the only African in, in, in social science, in, you know, so on. But I became this only after I fled prison in 86. I almost died in prison, you know? I mean, so I'm where I am today, but I may have just been a statistics, you know, someone 
a student crazy in the 70s who won democracy in his country who died in prison. I may have been just that, you know? And also, I have other colleagues who were smarter than me, who, were, who had the same level of dedication and academic credential that I had, who today lost it all. Alongside political unrest came an economic crisis, which Tandika Mukandawiri, professor of African development at LSE, caused a great depression. This also contributed to the hemorrhaging of Africa-based scholars of the time. There was a massive brain drain. A lot of, you know, the, I had written a paper once about the three generations of Africans. First generation, post-colonial generation, they went abroad. Um, I belong to that generation. We went in the 60s to study abroad. And some of the older ones, by the end of the 60s, were coming back to constitute the first African professoriate, if you like, you know. The second generation went in the 70s, went to the U.S. mostly, came back, just as soon as they came back, the crisis hit. They left and went back. The third generation never came back. Professor Mokandawiri there. Let's hear about the second factor behind the decline of university education across the continent. Leonard Wanchikon again. And the second one is the social adjustment program. Um, you know, there were some deficits of uh, budget deficit and macroeconomic uh, dysfunctionalities in many African countries and the recommendation was to cut education uh, funding, you know. And, uh, you know, in the 60s there were many countries, for instance, that have, you know, elite high school that were fully funded by governments. There were, uh, you know, there were scholarships that, you know, many low-income or middle-income children had. And there were for instance, uh, teaching colleges that were fully funded by governments, but then those funding were cut and abruptly, and this led to the decline of, uh, you know, of education. And many, many countries did not recover from that. Professor Wanchikon, structural adjustment programs were imposed by organizations such as the World Bank on economically stricken African countries seeking loans. One of the conditions for receiving these loans was to cut investment in higher education. World Bank economists developed the rates of return argument to justify this requirement. Tandika Mukandawiri explains. Well, the World Bank did some, they, they came up with a study, it was done by a guy, a Greek name, I can't remember now, but uh, the conclusion was that the rate of return for the individual was higher for higher education than for primary school, mm -hmm. and that therefore people would be willing to pay for higher education mm -hmm. because, you know, um, the rate of return is high. <coughs> and, and so from that, they came to conclusion against funding universities. The flight of African academics from the continent meant that there were few scholars on hand to document the economic crisis taking place in many African countries, as Tandika Mukandewiri explains. A lot of people who would, who would have documented the crisis were no longer in Africa, you know. Mm -hmm. They came and went and they left. And, and, and I was in Kodesia and we tried to mobilize some of those people, um, uh, but they were no longer in Africa, they were, they were abroad. And that... I think has affected scholarship on Africa in general. You cannot have scholarship on any continent uh, which has no base, which has no context with the, the, uh, uh, local scholarship. You know? mm -hmm. 
and and you know a lot of journals that were published in Africa collapsed. You know, mm -hmm. and, um, when I worked in Kodestria, actually, it was a I read an article once by a French writer was attacking Kodestria for being a conduit for the brain drain because a lot of our top people ended up being in the U.S. It was very frustrating actually when you think about it because you identify through our work our networks certain scholars emerged and then they were plucked out. I think African governments didn't react intelligently to what was happening because they, it was, they, they could have probably done what I understand China does to say, okay, you're, so you're in America, you, we know you're settled there, but we want to buy at least two months of your time a year to come and teach here. Mm. Or, you know, we didn't do that. It wasn't until the late 1990s that major development organizations began to recognize the critical role of higher education in economic development and the policy of cutting investments in higher education was abandoned. Yet, the continent is still struggling with the impact of decades of underinvestment in universities. Sadika Mukandewiwi again. In many countries in Europe, university education is free, and, and that has not been challenged. Mm -hmm. But once you challenge it, it's very difficult to go back to it, you know? And, and uh, because it's like you've broken a taboo, and World Bank did break a taboo. <laughs> of state funding of, of university education yeah. you know, you know. and uh, and also they did intellectually um, challenge a major aspect of development which was human capital is important mm -hmm. and that is still with us it's with us um, it's shown by the the law of budget budgets for higher education uh, the growth of this fly-by-night private universities and and Africa's serious shortages in human, human, uh, human skills. Despite many Africa-based universities making strides, they are still years behind where they should be. Sandika Mokandariri. If you go to most African universities, the old ones, uh, one thing that immediately strikes you is that the founders of these universities had lots of faith in them and they built quite impressive infrastructure. You can see these old buildings. They're really very impressive. And then came the financial cri the crisis and then the World Bank's position and there was a dramatic fall you know I remember one of the cases I cannot forget was in going to a library a bookshop a library in Ivory Coast and there were no books anymore you know and that regression of our institutions you know is is still there I mean you know some you know some universities have there been some rebuilding cleaning up the world I mean I was very impressed with you know Ghana you know but we have lost these years you know that's the thing about when you think about the loss of uh, dep of this Great Depression. That it's not that we went down and it came up. You have to th think how much was was lost and how long it would take just to get back that loss. You know, and we're very far from doing that. Yet, according to Tandika Mokandawiri, the negative impact of the structural adjustment policies are not irreversible. If you take China, you know, you know, under Mao Zedong, there was a lot of disruption of the university system. Mm -hmm. uh, but they reversed that. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be reversed, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It is happening already. It's being reversed already because, uh, and there are two reasons for that. One, uh, the middle class mm -hmm. who can no longer send their children to Europe mm -hmm. or America are worried about the quality, quality of universities. Mm -hmm. For the first time, you hear more. You hear debates in Parliament mm -hmm. about the funding of universities. Mm -hmm. So there has been this the demand for the domestic universities mm -hmm. by the middle class. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and the absence of top quality private universities. Mm -hmm. So what's bizarre in Africa now is that the state universities, which are still the, the best universities in the country, may increasingly be for reserved for the rich mm -hmm. who send their kids to the best secondary schools to mm -hmm. qualify mm -hmm. for f public universities. You know. mm -hmm. And the poor will end up going to fee-paying private universities, mm -hmm. bad universities. You know. yeah. That's, that's the, the danger right now. Professor Mokandawiri there. So what has led to the crop of private universities across many African countries? Leonard Wanchikon, Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University and LSE Centennial Professor has this to say. Private universities were created uh, to compensate for uh, the fact that there were a, a high level of enrollment and enough, not enough capacity in public universities. You know, I mean, for instance, some universities have increased their capacity by tenfold. And if you, if you take the uh, like University of uh, Benin that I was, when I was a student there, it was about maybe 5,000 students, you know, in the late 70s. Uh, now, you, it's by 80,000 students, you know. So, but the capacity has not increased that much. You know, so as a result, uh, private universities were created. Now, because lack of qualified teachers and because of professors or teachers, and because those private universities have to draw resources from public universities, what happened is that the quality of the teaching is not always there. But yet, there are some, I think, very, very good elite uh, pub, uh, private universities across Africa today. And, uh, you know, if you look at placement in top jobs, you know, uh, many private universities, in fact, have done very well because um, sustained and sometimes very good quality training that they provide to their students. Now, uh, the issue there is the one of cost, you know, because some universities some private universities are mostly commercial. They are not necessarily uh, research-oriented. Uh, Professor Wanchikon, the decline of higher education has been accompanied by a decline in one of the most significant social science disciplines, economics. It's very, it's very complex. You know, first of all, it, it, it has, I mean, I, I can cite like three main reasons for why this is, this is the case. Okay, first of all, I, it's the overall decline of African universities, you know, because, I mean, to become an economist, you, you need to be rooted in many, many disciplines. You need to be able to get, you know, to be very fluent in African in history. You need to be strong in mathematics, relatively strong. You, you also need to be able to read social issues very clearly. That means that you have good economics training and sociology training. And we, given the, the decline in overall quality of universities, it's actually more difficult, you know, to, to train, uh, you know, good economists. And the second uh, reason is that it's the disconnect that we have between African-based universities and university worldwide, you know, because in these days and age, you need young scholars to have the opportunity to travel, an opportunity to be exposed to what's happening elsewhere. 
And those kind of partnerships and connections are very, very, very limited, you know, and this doesn't help. And also what it doesn't help is the fact that to get young Africans to apply and to get into top universities and also to get uh, economists from Africa who are abroad to come back and teach into local universities, you know. So um, this makes it difficult, you know. But but I, but I think I think the most damaging, uh, you know, what what the, the main reason that this is also happening. So, I mean, one of the reasons why this is also happening, it's that I'm not saying the main, but I think one of the reasons that I think is also important is the value of academic profession has declined a little bit. You know, I mean, like in the 70s and 60s. Being a professor is a big thing, you know. Today it still is, but many young people will prefer, like, getting a job at a bank and being consultant, you know, as opposed to spending five, six years, you know, to get a PhD. I didn't say that there is a systematic effort to exclude Africans from the profession. This might exist, but we have the power, we have the opportunity to challenge that. Thanks to Leonard Wanchikon. Let's hear from Tandika Mukandewiri, Professor of African Development at LSE again. Most African economists before structural adjustment were what people call structuralists. Mm -hmm. And then came the structural adjustment. The people who were running with structural adjustment felt, first of all, they were upset that they met opposition from the existing Mm. economists, mm. massively, I mean, almost all of them were against structural adjustment. Mm. So they decided to create their own economists. Mm -hmm. And they set up a network, the, uh, economic, the African Economic Research Consortium, mm -hmm. uh, to train economists who would manage macro, uh, train in macroeconomics. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the tragedy of African training of economists is that it's been so in a way, donor-driven. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Even the first, the first generation, we were supposed to be trained in planning methods. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So you did the input-output, mm -hmm. national income accounting. And then people went back in the 70s. They said, oh, no, well, you need, what we need really is project evaluation managers. Mm -hmm. So you know, new manuals were written on, you know, on cost-benefit analysis and project evaluation. Mm -hmm. As soon as those people came back, with their PhDs, you know, they were told, no, the issue is stabilization. Mm -hmm. So they set up this net network, mm -hmm. produce a lot of people who to stabilize economies. Now, normally stabilization doesn't need many people. You need one man and the finance, Minister of Finance and one of the Reserve Bank to devalue a currency, you know, that's it. Um, so in the process, they specialized economics, economies for sectors, whether transport economics, and health economics, they disappeared. Mm -hmm. you know, that training did not exist. Now that they're going back to projects in industrialization and projects, they're worrying about Africa has no project planners. Because mm -hmm. we, we stopped training them in the 70s and the 80s, because the 80s was for... So we're going back to square one. We mm -hmm. must train... Um, even when they were having these PRSPs, mm -hmm. which suggested some idea of a national economy, mm -hmm. the, the donors themselves began to find that we don't have Africans who can write these documents. Mm -hmm. 
So the World Bank began writing them for us. You know? This dearth of economists on the continent was one of the motivating factors behind the decision of Leonard Wanchikon to found the African School of Economics in Benin. There are not many African economists, you know, and, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, there is a decline in terms of the voice and representation of African in big economic and political debates that has to do with Africa. So first I decided to uh, identify some very bright African students and bring them to uh, American universities to get them to get some training and contribute to this debate and go back or, uh, you know, at least to be part of uh, this kind of, you know, be part of the academic uh, uh, community. So I was able to, 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 to bring maybe you know, half a dozen students to Africa, well, to, to, to the US, but then clearly that's not enough. So I thought that the best thing to do was to set up a training center, and it was an institute in public economics and uh, statistics that I set up, and the institute did very well and was, you know, contributed to, uh, you know, to Afrobarometer uh, network. You know, Afrobarometer is a network of, to, that does public opinion research across Africa. And um, we also um, train like a dozen of students uh, every year, try to place them in, in, in very good PhD program. But again, it was too francophone. It was too focused on francophone countries. And it was also, um, you know, it was most of the students went to consulting, not to universities, you know, because of a language barrier. Most of the economics research today is done in English. So I decided to expand that institute that I set up and called the Institute of Empirical Research in Political Economy that I set up in 2004. Six years later, in 2010, I decided to expand this to, into a full-fledged university called the African School of Economics. And after four years of preparation, the school opened in 2014. My real motivation, as you can see, is um, to really give the opportunity for young Africans to become world-class economists. Leonard Wanchikon there. In addition to efforts by Leonard Wanchikon at the African School of Economics, other more heterodox organizations have been stepping up their efforts to challenge external paradigms and more orthodox viewpoints. They also seek to widen the intellectual space for African economists and political economists to engage with more radical analysis. Such organizations include the Third World Network, whose African Regional Secretariat is based in Accra, Ghana. There is also the Samoyo African Institute of Agrarian Studies, based in Harare, Zimbabwe, which hosts annual summer schools for researchers working on radical analysis of agrarian development. In addition, the Africa Group of the Institute of New Economic Thinking's Youth Initiative has also been active in boosting knowledge exchange between mainstream economists and more heterodox economic historians throughout the continent. Let us hear from Alden Young, assistant professor at Drexel University, about some of these efforts. One of the challenges has been to represent African economic thought as economic. And I think one of the innovations of the Institute for New Economic Thinking and the Young Scholars Initiative has been to not care about that disciplinary um, boundary and to basically take an approach in which we put out open calls. We basically take those who apply. 
And that has actually led us um, in many new directions. For instance, in the last call, we weren't looking for the history of economic thought, per se. But we discovered that there were wide-ranging um, demand and interest in the history of economic thought um, in places like Nigeria, Ethiopia. Um, there's a call for new economic history text, new history of economic thought textbooks. Um, or, for instance, one of our biggest partners is the University of Zimbabwe in the economic history department. And I think on one hand, if we take the labels or the methodologies of what economic history means in the global north, one might say that economic history is not being practiced at the Department of Economic History at the University of Zimbabwe. But one of the challenges has been to actually start from there and be like, okay, what is it that they're actually doing at the University of Zimbabwe in the Department of Economic History and that this is economic history? And then by constructing those types of panels, we've been able to put on, you know, the chair of the Department of Economic History at the University of Zimbabwe with leading economic historians who are actually in the economics department from universities like Stellenbosch um, or, or from universities in Europe, and to have an argument or have a discussion about what actually is economic history and, and what are the goals, what are the roles of methodology, for instance, um, in these questions. That was Alden Young. Earlier in the episode, we heard from Professor Tandika Mukandewiri about the dominance of donor-driven paradigms. Let us hope that these recent efforts by Leonard Alden and the folks at the Third World Network and also the Samoyo Institute can effectively counter this tendency and build stronger and more heterodox approaches to African developmental challenges. So looking to the future, how can universities across Africa reclaim what they had in the early post-independence period? We need professors and we need people to want to be a professor. We need governments to support people who want to be professors and we need international community to think that we cannot have a situation where most people who have something, you know, uh, research based to talk uh, about Africa will be non-African. We cannot have that. It's not efficient. It's not sustainable. So as a result, when we have a project in Africa, it always has to have this kind of components where we think about the future. We think about young people and say, do we have, can we devote 10% of the funding to identify good students, to provide them scholarships? to work on the project and use that and report it to get into PhD program to be those who will replace us tomorrow. We need to, to see universities and centers in Africa that are producing like very good research and who are placing their students in very good program. And we, we need to be very kind of very pragmatic and very clear about how we identify good universities and how we support them, you know, for them to be, be successful. And I, I think, uh, you know, my own experience from the university that I set up, uh, you know, is that, you know, it, we are not there seeking funding and, you know, we are not like commercial kind of uh, enterprise. So we, for us, it's, all about result, you know, a result for us is are we, do we have alumni 
who are publishing, who are writing good papers and good articles about Africa? Um, are we getting published? You know, and, and also, are we making a difference on policy making? You know, do we connect well with uh, uh, governments, with international organizations about our research? You know, I think there should be a systematic way to identify those kind of programs and, and support them. But, but more importantly, is to encourage them to adopt sustainable kind of strategies so that they don't be they are not going to be dependent on donors because donors have agenda they do have agenda they have to have an agenda and i do not want research center in africa to just do what donors want them to do thanks very much leonard wanchikon for that roadmap for the future thanks as well to professor tandika mokandawiri professor akosia adomako ampofo and dr alden young for your insights for this episode. Next up on Sites in Africa, we'll be taking a look at Latin American studies to see if there are any parallels with African studies. I'm Sierra Mirwillaby. Thank you for listening to Sites in Africa. Sites in Africa was funded by the LSE Knowledge Exchange and Impact Fund, the LSE Department of International Development, and the Review of African Political Economy Journal.